Ron Mader and I are uh, headed to the Philippines in about a week and a half. October 19th, we're headed out to teach at Cebu Bible College's annual minister's conference. Um, this will be Ron's first trip to the Philippines where we go, and I think this is my fourth trip. Ron's going to be teaching through First and Second Samuel, and I'm going to work my way through the parables. And while I was studying the parables, getting ready for this um, trip, I was hit with the realization of how often Jesus talks about stewardship, giving, and money. Those are very common themes in his teaching. And I just realized money is a subject we, just, we don't talk about very often. I usually have something to say about money and our budget and the projects we've been involved with and ministries and stuff in March, you know, every year when we kind of say, here's, here's our budget for the year. But other than that, not much is typically said, and that's probably not best for us. Uh, Jesus talked about money often. One-third of his parables deal with the topic of stewardship. Money is a common subject in the Gospels. And that's probably because money is a part of our lives every single day. I bet we go through very few days in a year when we don't spend any money. No financial transactions. Big gulps and Starbucks are the daily routine, you know, for many people. It seems to me that money is a subject that uh, can seem to be off limits, at least honest and meaningful conversation about money. We'll all complain about how much things cost or how tight the company we work for is and they don't pay us enough and all of that. But when was the last time you asked for any advice or affirmation regarding spending, giving, or saving, about the only three things you can do with money. Jesus talks about money more than any other subject except the kingdom of God. Check this out. This seems like a very nosy thing to do, but one time, Jesus stationed himself where he could see what every person that came into the temple put in the collection basket. Every person, he took note. He took note of every person's donation amount. Now, before COVID, we used to pass a basket around, um, and can you imagine if Dale, who's our treasurer for the Southside Church of Christ, Inc., um, if he walked around behind the basket just noticing what everybody put in? It'd make you a little uneasy, wouldn't it? Or what if we used a PowerPoint slide and had a running total of how much every person donated through the year? Probably smaller crowds might, might show up. But for Jesus, giving was not a private matter. He taught on the subject of money frequently. We hear his parable about the rich farmer. We read about the encounter with the rich young ruler and his, um, and his encounter with Zacchaeus. We listen to his teaching on trust and treasures in the Sermon on the Mount. We hear him teach about the dangers of wealth in Luke chapter 6. I want to I share some insight with you about money, which I picked up in a book uh, by Richard Foster called Money, Sex, and Power. It, it's really an excellent book. It's been around a long time. But his teaching on money has shaped my understanding and relationship with money significantly. Before I was influenced by his message, I thought of money as something neutral. It's just a medium of exchange. Money wasn't necessarily good or bad in itself. It's our attitude toward money which makes it good or bad. I don't think that's what, te- what Jesus teaches about money. Jesus seems to want us to see that there's an inherent dark side to money. He shares some significant truths about wealth and money. I'll just read some of these. In Luke, he says, Woe to you who are rich, 
In another place, he says, you cannot serve both God and money. He says, do not lay for yourself treasures up on earth. In Matthew, he says, it's easier for a camel to do what? You know that one. Then it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Watch out, he says. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Jesus' teaching about money is hard to digest. So what we tend to do is we try to soften the blow a little bit. We try to tone down the message. Before doing that, it might be wise to simply listen with a Bible open in your lap. Try your best to hear what's being said before dismantling the message. What Jesus tells us about money is clearer and more precise than he is about a lot of other issues. Foster says the most difficult thing we have to deal with when we begin to think about money is fear. What Jesus says about money is absolutely countercultural. His teaching goes against everything we hear and are taught. It's definitely scary to buy into what Jesus is offering. On top of the general fear of viewing, more, of viewing money so differently from everyone around us, you may also fear being without money because money may have been pretty scarce in your family when you were growing up. Your parents may have had anxiety about money, an anxiety that you've chosen to adopt, to embrace. You may have a fear of financial failure. And besides fear, there is a distortion that I want you to understand. I'll try to make this really as clear as possible. This is what I learned from Foster's book about money. Money is not neutral. Money is not just a medium of exchange. Money is not simply good or bad based on our attitude. Money is a power in our lives. Our relationship with money is filled with moral consequence. I'd like you to think about the line from Jesus, which I spoke just a moment ago. In Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or despise the one and be devoted to the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Let's say that last line together. You cannot serve both God and money. At first, Jesus seems to be talking more generally about having only one master, but then he shines a spotlight directly on the battle between money and God. Which will win the devotion of your heart? You cannot serve two masters. Jesus could have focused on any number of competing gods in our life, yet he chose to specify money as the preeminent competitor. Because of what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, we can clearly see that money is a rival God. Money is a rival God in our life. Money is a rival God in our culture. Money is trying to grab our attention, our loyalty, our heart. Money is trying to gain our worship. When Jesus makes this statement, he's setting up a battle between two potential masters, God and money. And money is one of those powers energized by spiritual forces. Paul writes about the rulers and authorities, the powers of this dark world in Ephesians 6. Money falls into this category because money is capable of inspiring devotion. Money has the goal of winning our hearts, securing our worship. Think about how you've seen people go to great extremes, invest in high-risk schemes in an attempt to get more money. Better yet, what extremes have you gone to in an attempt to gain more money or to cling to what you have? Have you ever bumped up and maybe even stepped over some moral boundaries to get more money? 
In Matthew 19, Jesus meets a guy whose name we don't know. He's come to be known as the rich young ruler. And this young, wealthy, influential person comes to Jesus and asks him this question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him, if you want to be perfect, go sell your stuff and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. And when we understand that the rich young ruler's wealth was a rival God seeking this guy's absolute devotion, that helps Jesus' directive to him make a little more sense. God has been consistently against competing loyalties since the beginning. He wants our worship, and he wants all of it. Money was this man's God. It's what he worshiped. Compare that with the encounter, uh, the time Jesus met with a tax collector who does have a name, and it's Zacchaeus. Money was pretty important to this guy too, and Jesus freed him from, allegiance to, from his allegiance to money. Zacchaeus said to Jesus, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And check out Jesus' response. He says, today salvation has come to this man's house. By meeting Jesus, Zacchaeus was set loose from his tie to the God of money. Zacchaeus experienced freedom and salvation. And he was lost in his worship of money, but was given salvation from the ties to this rival God through getting acquainted with Jesus. Money as a God desires supremacy in our lives. Money is pursuing our, our total allegiance. When money is our God, we attach ultimate importance to it. Just watch what people will do in their pursuit of wealth, both poor and hungry, as well as the wealthy who are feasting. If money were only a medium of exchange, it makes no sense to, asat, to attach so much prestige to it. We value people in relation to their income. We search the internet to see what someone's worth. Have you ever done that? Have you ever checked out the government salary database to see how much your neighbor makes who works for the government? By the way, for all you Swifties, um, Taylor Swift's net worth is $740 million. Your neighbor's net worth is probably a little less than that, I'd guess. Take a quick look at a familiar word about money from Paul in 1 Timothy 6. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people... Eager for money, worshiping money, have wandered far from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Inherited money is a seductive power which demands our all-in worship. And money has the power to pull us away from our faith and away from our God. Paul and Jesus are on the same page. Paul sees money also as a rival God, seeking our worship, seeking our devotion. By saying that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, Paul is telling us there's no kind of evil the person who loves money will not do to get more and to hold on to what they have. I read about a highly disappointing study that's a bit dated, but would surely not be any different today. The question for a national survey group was this, what would you do for $10 million? That's a lot of money. What would you do? What would you sacrifice? What would you stoop to for $10 million? Well, we know what people taking the survey would do. 25% of them are willing to abandon their family for $10 million. 16% would give up their American citizenship. 16% would leave their spouse. 25% would abandon their church. 7% would murder for $10 million. 3% would put their children up for adoption. <laughs> On some days, it'd be much less than $10 million. <laughs> <laughs> but here's, here's what's most revealing. 
Two-thirds of those polled would agree to do at least one thing on the list. Some said they would do several things on this list. Money is not just a medium of exchange. Because money is a rival God, Jesus' repeated and consistent solution for protecting ourselves from the allure of money is really pretty simple. Any guesses? Give it away. Just give it away. That's the answer to the rich young ruler. That's what Zacchaeus did when he listened to Jesus' teaching. That's the, that's the road Jesus goes down in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, when you give, uh, giving is an assumption. That's the message Jesus gives as he watches people put their offering in the temple. Give your money away. Be generous. John Wesley said, when I have money, I get rid of it quickly, lest it should, get into, find, lest it should find a way into my heart. Here's a question we would benefit from asking ourselves every now and then. Why do I have so much? Why do I have so much? Though few of us would say we have as much as we want, I'd guess most everyone in the room has the basics covered. So consider what you actually have, your possessions, your income, your savings. You probably have more than your parents had at your age. You probably have more than you had 10 years ago. You probably have more than most people in the world have. So why you? Why do you have so much? This rival God who is trying to steal our hearts keeps us too focused on what we don't have. And a focus on what we don't have leaves us vulnerable to the allure of what a little bit more offers. Why has God given you so much more than you need? Perhaps you can think back to a season in your life when you didn't have enough. Maybe your car gave up the ghost and you didn't have the money available to replace it. Maybe you're newly married with a child on the way. And how are you going to keep up with the extra expenses on your current income? And while, this in, while you're in this season, you may have questioned God about your predicament. You may have even blamed him or at least let him know what you expected him to do to help you. And when he came through, you may have thanked him. So now you're on the other side with more than enough. You have enough to cover your mortgage. You have enough to keep food in the fridge. You have enough to pay that property tax bill you got in the mail this week and the insurance that goes along with that. You have enough for daycare, for soccer fees, for band instrument rental, for a family trip to Florida, birthday parties. Why don't we question God all about that? When we don't have enough, we wonder why. Why not wonder why when we have more than enough? When we have more than enough, it's easy to become greedy. Andy Stanley lays, it out, lays out this truth very plainly. Guilt is conquered by confession. Anger is conquered by forgiveness. Greed is conquered by generosity. And that brings us, brings us back to the primary way not to be seduced by money. You've got to give it away. Generous giving will help to fight off the temptation that this rival God fires our way. I would suggest that you give to the point that it forces you to adjust your lifestyle. Early in our marriage, one commitment Mary and I made to each other was this, and it was one of the better things we ever did together. We didn't want any financial obligation to be greater than our church donation, mortgage being an exception. That includes a car payment. You know I like boats. That includes a boat payment. Expenses to maintain a hobby, a home equity line for home improvements, or other things like that, savings for retirement, vacations. That single commitment 
forced us to carefully consider what we were spending our money on compared to the amount we were giving to God. I don't believe New Testament Christians are under the obligation of the old law, which which stipulates uh, giving a tithe, 10% off the top. In fact, if you dig a little deeper, you'll learn that the old law stipulation is really actually three separate tithes, 30%. They gave 30% in the Old Testament back to God. I haven't seen any New Testament writers nor Jesus lay that expectation on us. I do believe strongly that the idea behind the tithe is a principle Jesus and the New Testament authors honor. And the principle of the tithe is this, first and best. First and best. That may be 10% for you, or it may be more. God is looking for our first and our best. First and best requires thoughtful and intentional giving. First and best will take us by the hand and lead us to a lifestyle of generosity. First and best will definitely lead to a strong and tall wall of protection from the temptation that money fires at us. What do you think? You know, what would you say you're current, are, you, are you currently giving your first and your best? Have you been thinking, why me, God? Why, why do I have more than enough? Why haven't you given me so much access to so much money? Why don't we choose to be generous when we've been the recipient of overwhelming generosity from God? Why isn't generosity our default quality? Well, a couple of things come to mind. One is procrastination. Very practically, it's procrastination. We intentionally put off what we know we should be doing. It's not about forgetting or that we put it out of our minds. We have ignored the nudge. We have ignored doing the best thing that we can do. Paul tells a group of believers in Corinth who have made a commitment to help out a struggling church in Jerusalem. He tells them just real simply, finish, what, finish the work. You said you were going to do this. Do it. Do the right thing and do it now. Do it today, he says. Did you have a plan at one time to give to your church family, that, but that plan just kind of got set aside? Just, I'll do that later. Did you have a plan? Uh, did you intend to give more money you got from your last promotion or your raise, but you just never really followed through? Paul says, finish the work. Follow through. Do it now. First and best. It's never too late to start. First and best. Another word which comes to mind is hesitation. Because of our unhealthy relationship with this rival God, we we hesitate. We wonder, should I give this amount or that amount? Should I give to this church or this ministry? Maybe if I wait a little bit longer, I can give more later. Paul says this in the same context of the Jerusalem church and the Corinthian church helping each other out. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one doesn't have. In other words, don't get stalled out in the details. Our willingness trumps all the questions. It trumps all the hesitation. Don't stay on the sidelines all tangled up about what you can't do. Give your first and best now. God will use what you give back to him. He can't use what you don't give him. So we get tangled up sometimes by our procrastination. Sometimes we get tangled up through hesitancy. The third word I'll throw out to you is this, and it's exception. And here's how this sounds. Since others make more money than I do, since others drive nicer cars than I do, since others have a bigger home than I do, since others have so much more than me, I'm not responsible. I'm an exception. Others will take care of paying the bills and keeping the lights on at church. Others will take care of covering the salaries and sending people to Chile and making retreats affordable for our teenagers. 
here's, here's the deal. We can easily find people with more resources than we have. I have a friend who I've been eating lunch with a couple of times a year for, how long have I been here? 34 years. He said to me 34 years ago, I make more money than you, so I'll always buy lunch. And he has, and he does. <laughs> you know, that's a lot of lunches over 34 years. So that freed me up to buy more lunches for college students in those days. Paul tells the Corinthians, you may help out the Jerusalem family today. Tomorrow, the Jerusalem church family may be the ones helping you out. He says it this way, at the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The last thought I want to leave you with is this. God owns it all. If we absorb those four words, we'll be led to a lifestyle of generosity. Here's just a couple of texts from, uh, this is from Deuteronomy. To the Lord belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Psalm 50, God says, I have no need of a bull from your stall or goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine and a cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field. They're all mine. And Paul says this in 1 Timothy, for we brought nothing into the world. And you know this one, don't you? You can take nothing out. Why? Because it was never ours to begin with. We will be so much better off if we hold money loosely because it's all God's. You know too well how the money could all be gone tomorrow. You get that. I read, I read a story about a farmer who owned a cow that gave birth to twin calves. And at lunch, the farmer told his wife all about this good news. He said, that mama, that mama cow had twin calves this morning. I wasn't expecting that, but the Lord blessed us with twins. So I think it'd be a good idea to get, a, good idea to get one of those calves to the Lord. We'll keep one for ourselves. So the farmer made a commitment to his wife that the proceeds of the one calf would go to the church. Well, a couple of days later, the farmer came back to the house for lunch. He was pretty somber. He was unable to eat. He pushed his plate away. After a few minutes of silence, he asked his, his wife, asked him what's wrong. He said, well, I have some bad news. I was in the bar this morning and found out that the Lord's calf died. <laughs> Here are two principles for you to remember today. First and best, that's what God's looking for. And God owns it all. Let me wrap this up with one more illustration. I realize that writing a check is becoming an archaic practice. So for those in their teens and 20s, this is what a check looks like. <laughs> this is an ancient method of banking, of paying money to a recipient for work done or giving a donation. I had a college roommate once who said, as long as you have checks, you have money. That's not the way it works. You have to have enough money in the bank to cover the amount of the check that you just wrote. Well, let's walk through the process of writing a check. You might not know. We receive lots of checks weekly, as all of you make donations to Southside. Several of you go through this process. So first, you enter the date in the top right corner. It's October 8, 2023. And when you write that date down, you... There's something significant about that. It reminds you that your time is limited, and so is the time that you have to enjoy your possessions. Because all you have will either rust, or burn, or be, be given away. That, that's kind of depressing, but that's the way it goes. 
So give all you can while you can. Then you write the name of the person to whom you're giving the money. You can't really write God as the recipient. That, that doesn't really work. Uh, so you write Southside or Samaritan's Purse or Compassion International that uh, Hannah's talking about or some ministry you trust and you want to donate to. Then comes the amount, the moment of truth. Here are a few insightful words I ran across about this moment. You're more than a person with a checkbook. You're David placing a stone in the sling. You're Peter, one foot on the boat, one foot on the lake. You're a little boy in a big crowd. A picnic lunch is all the teacher needs, but it's all you have. What will you do? Sling the stone, take the step, give the meal. Careful now, don't move too quickly. You aren't just entering an amount, you're making a confession. A confession that God owns it all anyway. Then in the memo line, you write what the check is for. Light bulbs, outreach, youth mission trip, the trip we just made to Whetstone, assistance for someone struggling, uh, porch repairs for a single mom living in a trailer park, health care expenses for a young girl in Cebu, Habitat for Humanity bill. I mean, those are just things, a list of small projects and ministries we've supported this year. Developing a habit of writing a check, mailing a check, using online bill pay, planning center, which we just started. You can, pay, you can donate through that, my Vanco, or even cash in a basket. Leaning in toward having a thoughtful and intentional practice of generosity will only do good things for you, spiritually, emotionally, and even financially. Every time you give to Southside, you make it a little more difficult for this rival God to gain your loyalty. So give what is first and best, first and best to Jesus' church. Don't get hung up on a percentage. Just be intentional and generous, which is what first and best is all about. Here's a very practical invitation to you this morning. Jesus has shown us the way about what is first and best. Accept his invitation to join him in leading the way toward generosity. You can start doing that today. It's easier than ever to give to your church family. Give what is first and best for you. Don't procrastinate. Don't hesitate. Don't exclude yourself. It's very simple. Just be a generous giver. After all, God owns it all. All you have, he gave it to you. Let's stand and sing together.